The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, Owen Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode, I was on an insulin pump and I climbed Everest, so I had a backup pump. I was uh, equipped to go back on injections if needed on day one. I didn't wear a CGM at the time, so a ton of test strips, a ton of blood glucose monitors. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulin Podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night. Wherever you're listening from, or whenever you're listening, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it, and I hope you keep keeping well. I actually don't know where to start with my next guest, to be quite honest. Mr. Sebastian Sassville is an extraordinary diabetic. I really really enjoyed this conversation and i know that you're gonna enjoy listening to him he is a canadian diabetic diagnosed at the age of 22 so close to when i was diagnosed i was diagnosed at 19 as you know but what this man has done and what he continues to do is just unbelievable he is a motivational speaker he's done tedx talks for the first 10 years of his career, he's worked for Fortune 500 companies. He has completed six Ironman, which is a 2.5-mile swim, 112-mile cycle, and just top it off at the end with a marathon. He's done that six times. He's the first Canadian type 1 diabetic to climb Mount Everest. He has completed the Sahara race which is 250 kilometers over five days running through the Sahara Desert and is considered one of the top 10 most difficult endurance events in the world. So running 250 kilometers by itself is obviously difficult, let alone doing it in 50 degree heat on sand. I can't even imagine. Um, (laughs) He has also ran across Canada which is 7,200 kilometers. Now, we'll get into that in more detail in the podcast, but to put that into perspective, that's the equivalent of 170 marathons in nine months. Sebastian ran five 
or six marathons a week consistently for nine months. Like I, I just didn't even think that was physically possible, let alone doing that with type one diabetes. Despite everything he's done, everything he continues to do and the insane challenges he's completed, he remains extremely modest. And I'm sure you'll get that from this podcast. I am more excited about the challenges that he's done than he is. Obviously, he is excited about them, but he he comes across so well. He comes across so humble and modest, which is which is even more impressive again. So enjoy this episode. I know you're going to be massively inspired by it. Even when I was doing my research for it and learning more about him, I almost kind of got emotional a couple of times watching his videos and hearing about his story. So it's it's unbelievable. So enjoy. I won't take too much of your time. Obviously, Sebastian, what I noticed from reading about you, watching your videos and those kind of things is that we were diagnosed at a very similar age. I was 19. You were 21, I believe. Yeah, 21, 22. Yeah. Now, obviously, different countries, but pretty much the same time in our life. And there's loads of different things that I want to kind of pick your brain about in this episode, to be quite honest. But I'd love to know from someone now who seems like you kind of have almost like a bulletproof mindset. I'm curious to know how you felt and how your mindset was initially when you were diagnosed back then. I mean, you touch on a lot of very good points already. Um, first off, my mindset's not bulletproof. I <laughs> I have good days and bad days like everybody <laughs> and that needs to be told uh, we're all humans and um, one thing I've, I've uh, realized um, uh, recently is that the mindset and resilience is um, and all that stuff it's it's not an attribute um, it's a practice right so it's something you sometimes you have good resilience days sometimes you don't and if you like exercise if you stop working on your mindset and resilience well it will decrease so with all that being said um logically 20 years ago my mindset was not as strong um and when i was diagnosed i mean it was um i'd lie to you if i said it was uh, joyful and easy um it's it's bad news um that's just the bottom line um, my brother was diagnosed before me, um, so I'm the oldest, he's in the middle. We have a sister who doesn't have diabetes, uh, so we don't like her. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not part of the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the one, not advantage, but I mean positive was that I was already aware about the disease. Um, so I, I recognized my symptoms. I drove myself to the hospital. So I, I don't have one of those, you know, near death diagnosis uh, story, but it was, it, it was not easy. Um, that's, that's, um, that's for sure. So then because your brother was obviously diabetic, did you in a sense almost kind of know what to expect? A little bit, a little bit. That's 20 years ago, right? So things have evolved and changed in terms of medicines and technologies. Um, my biggest concern at the time was, am I going to be able to travel? Uh, because what I knew from, from his treatment was that insulin had to be kept in the fridge all the time. 
And, mm-hmm. and to me, that, that, that's the one thing I wanted to know. Am I going to be able to travel uh, and see the world? And that's the very first question that I asked, like, what about insulin? And, and, and I think there's a lesson in there because you, you just have to know what you love, have those big dreams, and then be curious and educate yourself and ask questions and figure out ways so that you can still, still you know, keep doing these things. And so very quickly I found out, no, like insulin is good at room temperature for 30 days now. And, and that was a massive relief. Uh, I knew that, you know, the thing I, I loved most was kind of intact. And, um, and uh, I think at this point, you, it, it was a conscious decision. Because I, 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 I had seen my brother suffer because of the diagnostic and how he chose to manage it. And um, I didn't want to repeat that, and I wanted to help him. So it was, a, yeah, a commitment um, to, to make life better for myself and for him as well, or mostly. Yeah, so essentially what I'm getting from that is, and similar to myself, in fairness, you initially have these thoughts of how is this going to stop me from doing something? Mm-hmm. And then even from my own perspective, because I didn't know too much about it i had obviously the the stereotypical misconceptions about diabetes in my head Mm. and then much like what you've been saying sebastian the more i learned about it the more i informed myself about it the more my confidence grew with that my confidence grew in relation to actually managing my blood sugar but my confidence also grew with actually not letting it stop me do something doing something i want to do Mm -hmm. i mean we, especially today, even more than 20 years ago, but we have all the necessary tools. And I do understand availability doesn't mean accessibility, but um, the tools and the knowledge is, everything is there. So that if you want to exercise with a perfect blood sugar, um, the knowledge and the tools are there to help you do that. Now you need to, you know, commit to to learning and to the work that it requires because it's because the tools are available doesn't mean it's easy and that we get it right all the time but it's a hundred percent possible and that's a choice yeah and it is one of those conditions that look when you suddenly have to take on the role of an internal organ you suddenly realize how complex (laughs) your body can be and it, it is one of those conditions that look it doesn't come with a manual. It doesn't come with a specific blueprint. It's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. Yeah, for the rest of your life. And, and you're, you're, you'll get better at it, and, and, but it's, no one can say they've mastered it, right? Um, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a practice. So you obviously have learned so much about your own diabetes, your own body, your own mindset from then up until now. Had you been into your sort of endurance events, running activities prior to your diagnosis? Not at all. Not at all. The, the, the only marathons that I ran were pub crawls and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, not active at all before being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I, I, you know, people who have heard me speak know that I suck in sports. Um, 
that I was the guy picked last in the sports team every single time, you know, when I was younger. Um, so, and it's not, everybody has a different story and, and people are diagnosed with different diseases and then tragedies happen to people, right? That's just life. And then sometimes people have an epiphany, right? Or a moment that changes everything. And uh, I can't even say that diabetes was that for me. It was, uh, obviously, I took a pause um, I, 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 uh, from the pub and, and that kind of stuff. And then I slowly decided, all right, I want to live healthy uh, now because I've got this disease. And it was the first gift that kind of forced me to clean up uh, my lifestyle a little bit. And then it was one step at a time, you know. I started to get more active. I started to meet people who were active. Then I started to meet people with type 1 diabetes who were active. Then I started to meet people with type 1 who were really active and into the, the endurance uh, stuff and, and long-distance triathlon and, and climbing and all that. And I, it was just one step at a time. I kind of got pulled in, and, and it was a good thing. And, and, um, yeah, um, and, and it took me years to bring my fitness to where it is now. Um, and it's obviously not, I don't take it for granted. So it's an everyday thing. It's a lifestyle, but, um, uh, it, it, diabetes, it, it, it wasn't that epiphany, but it, it, it definitely put me on the right path. There was a quote that I got from one of your videos today. I was watching and it says, well, you said, make it an ally, use it to produce positive energy. Mm -hmm. And I'm big on that in relation to not just focusing on the negative because look me and you were diagnosed with type one thousands of people around the world are diagnosed with type one there's nothing we can do about it but what we decide and what we control is how we react to it what we turn it into yeah because it's not going away that's just the bottom line so if you don't make an, it, it an ally well what if it's an enemy and it's never going away. That's an exhausting way to live your life, right? With with that enemy, like just mm. next to you all the time. It's just not a way to live. No. I think if you focus on the negative side of it, it's, uh, it's something that can easily consume your day physically and mentally. So it's important to get the positive aspects of it. Yes. We, 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 we live the stories we choose to tell ourselves. I want to repeat that because every word in that sentence is important. We, we live the stories we choose to tell ourselves. So if, if, you, if the narrative you build around diabetes is it's hard, I can't do what I want to do, I, I hate it, I have highs and lows, it sucks, well, that's the story you're going to live. Uh, but if you choose a different and a more positive story, then it's a lot likely to be a little easier. Is there anything that you had done, I suppose, post-diagnosis, even continuing today, that helps you live by that sort of belief? It's all the little things. It's, it's not one big thing. I'm, I'm a really big fan of this con consistency uh, recipe, um, which is totally not sexy and it doesn't sell, but it works. It's just everyday small actions that, that accumulate, that... Uh, and it's it's not just you know physical actions. I mean, it's it's mindset, it's behaviors, it's the influences you choose, it's the the challenge you pick for yourself. It's oft, how often you you, you you try to do something difficult because 
and you stop worrying worrying about if you're going to succeed, but you just wonder what you're going to going to learn. So that's what I've done um, for the last 20 years, just going at it one day at a time, trying to learn one tiny thing every single day. And um, when you turn around and you compare to, to yesterday, there's not much progress. Um, but then you turn around 20 years later and, and, and you're in a totally different place. Yeah, it's like the analogy of adding a brick to the house each day. It's not a massive change, but over time, it leads to a nicely built and sturdy house. Yeah. Now, Sebastian, you you were originally brought to my attention purely based off the fact that you were the first Canadian type 1 diabetic to reach the summit of Everest. But... Mm -hmm. The more I learned about you, the more I did my research on you, you have done so much more. Um, and I would, I would definitely like to pick your brain about those a bit. But I'd love to touch on the Everest climb, first of mm -hmm. all, because I've actually never spoken to anyone who's been to the top of Everest. And I've certainly never spoken to a diabetic who's been to the top. So when did you first decide that you wanted to climb to the top of Mount Everest? Well, I mean, I was fascinated with Everest before I was diagnosed with type 1, right? Not in the sense that it was um, like, um, I mean, it was a dream, but as I said, I didn't have much structure or resilience before diabetes. <laughs> um, so it was a big dream, but I was taking no actions uh, to, to, to get there, no serious actions. Um, so, so for years, I was you know, kind of, I liked watching films and documentaries about it. I was fascinated with it. I, I had a lot of admiration for people that, that, that went up there. Um, I think, um, um, yeah. And, and then when I was diagnosed, I, I, um, it just did put a lot of things in motion for me and, and kind of decided to turn the, the, the dream into a project and, um, and then took, you know, serious actions to to eventually get there. So the first few years when you train, when you're mountaineering, when you're, I mean, obviously you, it's just because you enjoy it. You just want to be out there and it brings you joy. That's the, <laughs> that's the number one reason why you do that stuff, because it brings you joy. Um, and, and, you know, again, one step at a time, like the mountains got, got bigger and then I met more people who were more serious. And, and um, uh, but I, I guess what was hard the first few years is that you've got this big dream, but you don't really know when it's going to happen. You know, it could be in five years, could be in 20 years. And, um, and, and I started to talk about it to people, uh, to potential sponsors, you know, companies who were involved in diabetes and... Um, same story, one step at a time. A few years later, um, I was there. So what sort of time frame then was it between making that initial decision of, right, I'm just going to turn this dream into reality. I'm deciding that I'm going up, up until you actually being on the top. Uh, maybe four or five years. You know, I, I was diagno diagnosed in 2002. I, I climbed Everest in, in 08. So that's six years later. Yeah, four or five years that it, that it took. To, to get ready, to, to earn the right to be there because anyone can book a trip to Everest now. It's, it's a different conversation. But we, the team and I, I wasn't the only one in that mindset. We wanted to, to earn the right to be at base camp. 
So we, 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 we traveled together before the climb, trained together, and, and made sure that uh, we wouldn't be a threat uh, for ourselves and, and others once we would be there. So what does the process of actually climbing the mountain look like? Because I'm guessing with the, uh, the change of, in altitude, you can't just go up in one go because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that would be quite dangerous. So is it you go up a small bit, you come back down, you go up again, you come back down. What does it actually look like to go up to the top? Yeah, uh, well, you use the right word. It's a process. And it's not a gradual climb from the bottom to the top and then you go home. Um, so you're, you're going to be away from home. Well, it's a two-month climb. You're, gonna be, you're going, to, going to be away from home for two and a half months, maybe three and uh, so, so, I mean, you leave home, it, it's a big trip to Nepal, then you get, uh, you arrive in Kathmandu, you take a few days to recover from the travel, the team, you know, happens, uh, arrives, not all at the same time. So you end up being in Kathmandu for, you know, almost a week, uh, a few teams, uh, team uh, meetings, uh, looking through gear, uh, connecting with the, the, the support uh, team, Sharpas. I, 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 and nobody can, and I'm, I, I need to say something here, right? Because I'm talking about the Sherpas. They, they make it happen. I, I want to be very clear. Um, they're amazing people, uh, very generous. Uh, they do really well in altitude, really hardworking. Self-worth comes from uh, not your car or your clothes uh, in their culture, but from helping others. So I really, really have to say this. They make it happen. Um, so uh, you meet with them. We had chosen to climb. Uh, we wanted to know these, 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 uh, these people uh, who are going to work with us, support us, be an integral part of the team. They're not just people doing stuff for us, right? They're an integral part of the team. So we had climbed with them the year before in Tibet just to get to know each other. And not all the teams do, not all the teams do that, right? So... Um, yeah, so yeah, about a week in Kathmandu, and then you you, you fly um, to Lukla. So that's something you may want to look up, uh, the Lukla airport. Um, it's one of the most uh, majestic and dangerous airport in the world. And um, and then from there is the trek to base camp. So the trek to base camp is about a week, 10 days, and you've already, already you need to make stops to acclimatize to high altitude, just walking to base camp then at base camp you're going to sit there for about a week and then start going up and down in the kumbu ice fall uh you'll do that once or twice then eventually make it to camp one so you're always back at base camp um step base camp for, at camp one for a while and then back down to base camp and then up again camp one camp two say so there almost a week it's a good threshold to acclimatize and then you come back to base camp and then we'll do that another time and then eventually go to Camp 3. Camp 3 is at 7,000 meters, um, 20,000 feet. Things starting to get serious. You go there very briefly one night just to push the acclimatization process as much as possible. Come back down to base camp. So that can be pretty depressing. From there, we'll even go lower on the mountain just to recover fully for the summit bid. You eat, you sleep, and uh, then you're back at base camp. And then wait for a weather window, so up to camp one, then to two, 
Uh, and then at two, you, you, you pause again and you wait for the summit uh, weather window. And uh, if, you know, um, and you can be the best climber in the world, <laughs> which was cert- certainly not my case. Uh, it's the mountain that decides if you're going to get the view from the top. So if, if there's no weather window, <laughs> I mean, you just, you know, so that, that presented itself. Uh, we were really lucky. And then we, you know, so we pushed to uh, Camp 3, then Camp 4 for the first time in the South Call. And then it, it, it's uh, a 24-hour push pretty much to, to make it to the summit. Uh, so you leave Camp 4 around 8 o'clock at night, hope to reach the summit the next morning, uh, back down at, at Camp 4, so within the dev zone still. Um, and then uh, one, more, one more night there, and then you descend uh, as quickly or safely as possible. So obviously you're still here, so everything everything went relatively smoothly. But I have two questions. Number one is, what did the people around you or people closest to you think of you doing this? Because a lot of people would think that going to Everest itself is obviously a, a massive challenge. Yeah. But then adding on top of it, like the icing on top, the fact that you're living with type 1 diabetes... How did people closest to you feel? And then the other question I have is, how did you prepare for actually being on the mountain with your diabetic supplies? Because I've done runs and traveled and these kind of things, and the preparation that goes into that as a diabetic can be complicated. Yeah. You need to make sure you have five times everything that you need just, yeah. just to be safe. Exactly. How did you prepare for it? Ah, two great questions. Well, I mean, first of all, it was mixed feelings for people around you, right? For good and bad reasons. Um, I mean, and it's very, you know, a wide variety of, of feelings. Some people have literally said, don't go and, or that's impossible. That's not going to happen. That's not going to work. Um, and you don't want to keep those people around. It says more about how they feel about it than and how they feel about their abilities than, than what's actually doable or not. Obviously, some people worry. I mean, obviously, your mom, your dad, <laughs> they, they want to see you uh, alive and well. Um, but they, they didn't say, don't go. And I, I'll always be thankful for that. I think they understood why I was doing it and, and what was the message and, and the intention and, and the legacy and, and um, yeah, so, and then how I prepared, it took years. I mean, it was years of taking notes and running experiments. So you, you yeah, you need to bring what you need. You need to bring backups. Uh, you're going for three months. There's not going to be a pharmacy, um, you know, that's accessible <laughs> or reachable. So that puts pressure on you because when you leave and you're gone for three months, what you have is what you have, and that's it. So don't forget anything. Now, um, obviously, everything except of ins- outside of insulin, um, you know, you just have to bring a ton, right? I remember um, I was on an insulin pump when I climbed Everest, so I had a backup pump. I was uh, equipped to go back on injections if needed on day one. I didn't wear a CGM at the time, so a ton of test strips, a ton of blood glucose monitors. I think I had 10 or 12 
And and you think it sounds like a lot, but it's not, right? Because I barely never lose my blood glucose monitors, right? And then on the first flight, I forgot one in, in, in the first plane. And I was so frustrated. I'm like, this is not a good start. <laughs> it's just Murphy's Law, right? It never happens. But so I'm down to 11 now. Um, so I need one on me at all times. I need some of my teammates to carry one. What if they lose it? They need backup. So, you know, um, you need a lot of that stuff. It was also about storage and transportation because who cares if you you have a lot of supplies if it's all in the same bag and you lose that bag or it's stolen then who cares how much you have right so there has to be a strategy around that and obviously insulin so insulin was the most stressful uh, most labor intensive part of the strategy because it cannot freeze but if you're gone for three months so the first half of the trip that insulin needs to be you know, kept cool. And we, we accomplished that with thermos and, you know, a thermometer in it. And, and then you just attend it every hour kind of thing, put some ice in the thermos or do whatever you can. And uh, that, yeah, took a lot of work. But there, there was also rotation, right? Because not all of the supplies need to be refrigerated. So some of it can be out, right? Because the first 30 days, then that supply doesn't need to be kept cool. Room temperature uh, is good, right? So, uh, but I I do remember getting to the 30, 40, 45 uh, days mark, feeling confident that the insulin had been kept cool. And that was a major victory because then I knew I was fine with keeping that insulin at room temperature for the rest of the, the back half of, of the trip. So just just a ton of work, um, really, to make that happen. Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's fascinating to hear because it is just that additional layer of complication oh, yeah. with anything that we do. And yeah. as if climbing Everest wasn't difficult enough as it is, then yeah. having to monitor the temperature of your insulin all your supplies in different bags it's uh certainly a lot more to handle than if you were just a quote-unquote normal person climbing the mountain yeah Yeah. was there any standout moment where you really felt like this is extremely difficult or any moment where you thought i can't do this or i should turn back i've had a lot of really hard days in my athletic career, whether it was on Everest or on, I mean, I've, I've had climbs where we suffered a lot more, uh, one in Kyrgyzstan two years prior, where, which was absolutely awful. I've, I've suffered a lot, you know, racing Ironmans and doing different things. Um, I can't, yeah, yeah. I can't say that when I ran a, across Canada, that's a marathon a day for nine months. Uh, uh, or almost five or six a week, um, you just, yeah, you suffer. But um, there's a, a clear distinction. Like, I never thought about giving up. Like, that's never even entered my mind. So there's a big difference between a bad day and, and then wanting to stop. Um, you know, sometimes you, you, you lose a little battle, but then you just you go resting, you go to rest and, and you come back the next day and you, you, you do better. That's what I like with the long, hard endurance events. Um, you can take a step back and it's fine. Um, and it actually 
turns out being a step forward, you know, something uh, that propels you uh, if, if you have the humility to be able to, you know, stop sometimes. So, yeah, a lot of very tough days, but never really uh, entered my mind to, to, to stop unless it wasn't safe, right? A, a climb the year before Everest uh, on a big peak and we did in summit and, and thank God we didn't push for the summit. None of us would be here today. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of things you learn for sure. And was that based on weather circumstances or supplies or just the difficulty of the mountain or what was it? Weather, weather, weather? definitely. Yeah. Okay. I, I think no teams uh, submitted that year. It was on, on Cho Oyu in, in Tibet and, um, that was not a good year on that mountain. So how did it feel then when you finally got to the top of Everest? after all those years i mean it's amazing i am not gonna lie to you <laughs> it's like it's it's a very powerful moment it's joyful it's emotional now you're you're at the highest point so that's the part that hurts the most physically um and it's it's kind of it's funny because you're you're not there for a long time i mean i think we we're on the summit for five minutes eh, that's uh, 300 seconds you know all that work for <laughs> And, and and then it's the half mark. See that 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 is important and part of, of the answer here. Um, the summit is the half mark, and most fatalities happen on the way down. So you 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 I mean you take a pause to to be present and enjoy the moment for sure. But three hundred seconds later, you're back to work and hard work. So I I, I think I remember because you're mentally you're not fully there and you're suffering and, and uh, there's always that also that not pressure but you know you, you need to get out of there uh, as quickly as possible so it's like a birthday party you know imagine the coolest birthday party ever with all your favorite people in the world that would last for five minutes um, <laughs> so it's it's you can't really enjoy it I do remember when we walked back into base camp several days later, that memory is almost more vivid and powerful than the summit because that's when I knew we had made it. Bad accidents have happened, not even in high altitude. Like, I mean, you're, you're the final moments through the Kumbu Glacier and you're late in the year, it's warmer, stuff is melting and moving and, and stuff can fall anytime. And, and I mean, people who have summited were lost there, you know, hundreds of meters away from base camp. So, but when we got to base camp, that memory is so, 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 so clear and, 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 and beautiful. So what was that feeling like? Was this a sense of relief or was it a sense yeah. of pride? All of the above, right? Everything. It's, it's hard to put a, your finger on, 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 on one thing you felt at, at the time. Yeah, you're immensely proud. I mean, you got to, ego is dangerous on those mountains, but, you know, you do something big, you got to, you got to celebrate it. You got to be proud and, and uh, allow it to, to boost your confidence a little bit. I was also humbled. I, I, I part of me, you know, because I, <laughs> I suck in sports, always had that imposter syndrome. So, so I, I was just, 
thrilled that the mountain decided that we would get to see the top. I understood what it meant to people with diabetes. The whole thing was built for that. And, and that was probably, if I had to pick one, uh, the thing that made me happiest, uh, knowing that thousands of kids around the world would would hear about this and, and go, oh my God, like if this is possible, I can do anything I want. That was the message. Um, and, and that felt really, really, really good to be able to reach the top and, and deliver that message. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I think what you do, what you have done and what you continue to do epitomizes what I want this podcast to be. And it's called Redefining Diabetes so that it can redefine what people think diabetes is societally and also what a diabetic thinks diabetes is or how it may restrict them. And some of the things you have done and like I say, continue to do are just phenomenal. And I'd like to jump then into when you did the Sahara race, Mm -hmm. which was 250K through the Sahara desert in five days. Mm Mm-hmm. Had you lost your mind at that stage? <laughs> that was tough. That was uh, physically, because on Everest, you, you spend a lot of time waiting. And, um, but what's tough is that you're always exposed. Uh, the Sahara race, which is a fantastic experience, that is just pure physical suffering because it's not long enough that your mind will <laughs> snap. Um, the, the finish line is close enough, even on day one that your mind doesn't really go somewhere too, too dark. Uh, a little dark, but not too dark. <laughs> um, so, no, it was just something I really wanted to do. There was a big appeal because uh, it was 100%, you know, opposite and different from, from Everest and everything else I had been doing for the years prior. So that was the appeal, just to kind of, I don't know, start fresh, try something difficult and i knew i i wasn't gonna win that race of course um and i was really excited and looking forward to the the learnings and and i i had no idea what to expect that was appealing i wondered what i would learn learn that was appealing um and um it, it was great uh, big challenge diabetes wise because the race is almost 100% self-supported. So again, what you have is what you have. And on Monday morning, when you start the race, you you supply all of your food and you carry it. So you're gonna run hard for a lot of hours every single day, like five to 15, 12 hours uh, more on the final stage, which is a double stage, 87K. Um, but yeah, you have, you have a, a reserve of carbs and and you got to manage it. Um, so diabetes control and preventing lows becomes very, very, very important. And I'll say that that's the closest I've ever been to a cure because <laughs> I was on no insulin. Um, not no insulin, but fumes. It was, it was uh, hilarious. And, and thank God we had a plan for that and expected that because... You don't want to be going low all the time and going through your food and, and be out of food on day three. Yeah, I only recently did the 48 
mile challenge. So it's four hours every four hours, 48 hours. And mm. over that weekend, I only took my basal insulin because my yeah. blood just kept dropping. And that was only 48 hours. And even then I was like, I just can't keep my bloods up. I was eating so much carbohydrate to keep me going. And then when I heard about you doing a five day, 250K challenge through 50 degree heat through the desert, I'm thinking, how did he even keep his blood sugar up? So what type of food were you eating through those five days? Kept it simple. I mean, it was a lot of gels. Um, I think I had planned about a gel an hour. Uh, it was, I mean, I lost a lot of weight, don't, don't get me wrong, but mm. because you, you have to strike that perfect balance between comfort and performance. I mean, you can bring all the food you want, but then your backpack's going to be heavy and there's not going to be performance. Um, so so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an art to strike that perfect balance. I, I think I had a cliff bar for breakfast every morning. Um, and then after the run, um, which was, yeah, four, five, six, seven hours a day, um, I had one of those fries, uh, uh, those like meals that you just had water to, hot water to. And um, anyway, so a lot of carbs, a lot of fat, and one of those, and that, that was it for uh, that was it for the day. I tried to save some for the, the evening. Um, I had a protein bar for every day, and so minimal calories, which is not ideal, but it's the, the nature of that, that race. So had you then taken any fast-acting insulin at all? Were you still on a pump at this stage? I was on a pump. You just... So my strategy was to, I wanted to avoid lows. So I, uh, I, I took a fraction of the boluses for uh, the meals. And my strategy was I would rather correct a high than go low and be out of food on day three again. And thank God I did that because I barely ever had to correct. And again, it was amazing on how little insulin I was. And then during the day, I, I, I reduced my, my basal rate to almost nothing. And um, you, you're always going to need a little bit of insulin, but I mean, it, it can be reduced like tremendously when you exercise that much. Well, that's it. You're, if you're moving so much and particularly in that sort of heat, your bloods yeah. are just always going to be inclined to drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But without insulin, I mean, it's going to spike up if you were to cut it hundred percent, right? So, so you do need some insulin and it's really about figuring out how little you need and, and not taking a drop more, but it's, it's, um, I don't want to say that simple, but it's, it's just, you know, insulin will push sugar in your cells, you know, blood sugar will drop and then food <laughs> makes it go up. So it's really, it's, it's simple and it's not right. But mm. it, it takes a lot of, you know, try and error to, to figure out what works. Like most things with diabetes, it's, it's just learning over time, trying different things. Yeah. What was it like to run on the sand the whole way through? Because I'm guessing sand isn't the most comfortable terrain to run in. No, and, and, and so different things there because it's it's not great for performance because you, you're, you're taking a step and then your, your, your feet... Um, if it goes in kind of thing. Um, and then for blisters, obviously, uh, that's a big problem. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's a lot more muscular than people think. 
uh, as opposed to just road running. Um, so yeah, it was it was very different, very different. Can I ask you, Sebastian? Do you enjoy putting yourself through that sort of pain? A lot. Um, <laughs> a lot. Why? I, I I don't say that in a like sadistic. <laughs> uh, I know. I know. It's just I I you learn so much, and that's what's fun. The pain's not fun, right? Your whole body and brain is designed to avoid pain and discomfort. I, I, I don't enjoy that part, but there's bad pain and good pain, right? And, and, and good pain is when you, you know you're learning something, you know you're growing, you know you're, you're developing and getting faster and stronger mentally and physically. And that's the part I like. Yeah, it's interesting because even for myself, like I haven't ran through the Sahara Desert, so I, I don't know that level of, of endurance events. But even when I go for longer runs or even when I did the 48 mile weekend, you kind of have conversations with yourself because your body is telling you, Owen, Sebastian, just stop. You're not supposed to be doing this. It's really sore. We're not used to this. Stop. What are you saying to yourself to shut your body up, essentially, and just to keep going mentally? Well, just understanding that mechanism is important because again your body will will do and your mind your brain will do everything it can to make you stop and it will rationalize it so it's like you're selling you're trying to sell this idea to stop to yourself so it's and and it's not just for big endurance events like day-to-day stuff like you've had a tough day at work you want to go for a run and now it's it's getting a little later you don't want to go and then you come up with like, I'll just go on Saturday, you know, I'll have more time. And it just kind of makes sense. I'll go run for an hour instead of 20 minutes on Saturday. So it's better to wait and not go today, right? That kind of stuff. So just to understand that's a protection mechanism, um, which is in place for good reasons. It's, you know, part of it is our survival uh, instinct. But just to understand that and, and be able to to change the channel kind of thing and to listen to a different voice, you know, the voice that says, yeah, no, let's go. It's better for consistent. It's, it's much better to run three times, 20 minutes than one time, one hour for a lot of reasons. Right. So I, I think about uh, things like that. I, I draw on, on previous experiences because I, you always feel good when you go. Right. So I'll, I'll think about, wow, like, how great am I going to feel after? And, and I go. Sometimes it's just you put on some music you love, and 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 it's it's a that's a band aid fix, but it works sometimes, right? So, just anything, or, or, or and you break it down, right? So, all right, maybe you don't have time to go for an hour, but you get out there and you say, I, I'm still going to go, but only 20 minutes. And I guarantee you, once you're there. You know, once you've taken that really hard first step of getting dressed and getting out of the house, that, that's the big uh, challenge there. Not the, the run. Once you're there, you're going to have fun, enjoy it, and, and, and be thrilled after. So it's really about that first step, that difficult first step, right? That first little barrier. And once you, 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 you do that, then things are a lot uh, easier. Yeah, it's like we we're constantly trying to convince ourselves to stay comfortable even if we know we want to go out for a run or go to the gym or whatever it might be 
and we know that we'll feel better afterwards like you said it's that initial first step of trying to convince yourself yeah and, and i want to go back to what you said there about kind of getting that motivation from a song or giving you that extra boost and i saw you speak about that briefly in one of the videos i saw actually only earlier today and you touched on that idea of not relying on your favorite song not relying on the finish line of a race i think is what you said because you you feel so tired but out of nowhere it's like you're sprinting mm-hmm. and there's fuel somewhere in the tank and you can't get it fully you can't access it fully until you see that finish line or mm-hmm. until you hear that that song do you think that's ourselves convincing ourselves that we don't have much more left until we see that finish line until we listen to that song or listen to that podcast is that something that you have kind of learned to dig into all the time yeah and again understanding those those mechanism is important and there's some good science uh on that so you know when you say uh, 90% of endurance racing and training is in the mind and the mindset that's kind of true that being said um, there's some really good science on, you know, you know, when you hit the wall, like people have studied that and there's a reason why it happens. And, th- and there's a reason why <laughs> 10 kilometers later, um, when you see the finish line, you sprint, like, where was that energy when I did hit the wall? Like it was there somewhere, right? There's science on that. Again, it's protection mechanism. It's, it's the brain constantly reevaluating, you know, the resources we have uh, against the, the time and the distance still to be covered. And, and the wall is kind of like the brain says, ah, I'm not too sure we're going to make it. So let's slow down uh, a little bit. And then you get to the finish line. It's the brain that says we made it. Um, whatever is left, spend it. So that sprint is not always the same. You know, some people sprint for 100 meters and some people sprint for one kilometer, depending on, 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 on what's left. So I think understanding that is, is, is uh, important. And, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's a long event, right? It's a marathon. It's an ultra marathon. Uh, so, so there will be good minutes and bad minutes and, and good hours and bad hours and, and uh, good days and bad days sometimes. And, and I've been in a lot of tough situations and, when you, you, you go to the next logical step, and to me, that's, you know, just a, a tiny bit more than last time, but still something reasonable. And I don't care it's, if it's one, one more minute, right? It's still better than last time. And if you do that consistently, you, you, you grow the belief that you'll always be fine, that you'll, you know, always come around and you'll always find a way to come back. And uh, again, and, and this kind of circles back to your first question. When I was diagnosed and 20 years ago, I didn't have that mindset. I didn't have that willpower and that resilience. But then if you purposely, uh, if you choose adversity, and really that's, that's the message here. My story is not overcoming adversity. My story is choosing adversity. So you, you, you choose the right amount consistently just so you grow um slowly but surely and, and yeah that's what you 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 draw from when you're you know going through a tough minute tough hour and um you you can you have more tools to turn things around 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because it's like one of my favorite books that comes to mind is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it's that exact idea of just because something seems difficult or just because something's hard doesn't mean it's negative or should be avoided. Like you have known from the past 20 years, the more difficult things that you do, the more tough you become. Yeah, in, in, in modern life, there's, there's, I'm going to be careful about how I phrase that, um, but there's not that many challenges. Meaning, I know we got to work hard and, and it's not always easy and, and, uh, and all that stuff. But, I mean, you work, you have a roof, you, you know, maybe you don't have all the money you'd like to have, but there's always food in the fridge kind of. And it's just, there's no, we're at the top of the food chain. And we don't realize how lazy that makes us. So, so because there's no real threat, then the only way we can grow is by choosing uh, adversity, by going towards it, because it's not going to be presented to us otherwise in this modern world we, we, we live in. Do you think you are better able to manage those kind of daily difficulties or daily struggles in regular life and also diabetic life because you have been through so many difficult, to say the least, physical and mental challenges with your endurance events? Yeah, because, because you, 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 you um, how can I say this? You uh, start understanding it's not a big deal. And because you're, you're having a bad day doesn't mean things are bad. It's just it's a bad day. Right? I don't know if that makes sense, but you just it does, it does. You, you separate yourself from, from the events. And it's just it's a bad day. Nothing's working today. It just happens. Um, it's, no, it's no big deal. And you start finding some, you know, kind of pleasure, fun in, in solving problems, right? Um, when you start, when you stop feeling like it's, it's you're the problem or, 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 you know, it's just you're going through something that's difficult, but it's, who cares? Like, it's no big deal. I just want to touch on quickly because I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But the most insane thing, and I mean insane in a good way, that you've done is your run across Canada. Mm. Now, for anyone listening, Sebastian ran across Canada, which is 7,200 kilometers. And to put that into perspective, that equates to 170 marathons in nine months. And you did, I think, five or six marathons a week. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to do that? It was to help and, and to make a difference. It was the whole project was diabetes driven. And, and I was looking at a few different big projects and ideas of, of challenges. And, and when we realized, oh, my God, like we can bring awareness about diabetes to in a different city to different people uh, visit a different diabetes center talk to a different media every single day for nine months throughout canada um it was to educate to inspire to empower same kind of simple message you can do anything and um and uh yeah so the running part it was just my little thing to me it was the the, the look for the media kind of stuff but it was really not about what I was doing. It was about what it meant. And it was 
yeah, the, the, I could talk for hours about the running part and stuff I hate and how did I manage blood sugar, but that's, that's you know, that's technical. That's kind of <laughs> boring. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. But no, no, continue, continue. It, but it was, uh, it, it was uh, the most interesting part to me is that, yeah, it was about the message and, and what that thing meant. And that's, first of all, that's because it was a big project, right? Half a million dollars, hundreds of people involved. You know, from the outside, it's just a guy running. The reality is it's a pretty complex um, and long endeavor. Um, we wanted it to be impactful. So you, you've got a video team and you've got the logistic team and, and all that stuff, right? So it, those projects get complex very quickly. So the way we were able to, I was able to, to find support, whether it's people donating time or a big corporation writing a big check, it was building a mission that was exciting that people wanted to be a part of so everything outside of running about this thing is to me is super fascinating and and the impact and that's what people people were involved in that project again donating time or i don't know what they were in it um not to help me run a marathon a day they were in it to contribute to the message and have an impact um, that's what they wanted to achieve. That's why they gave, uh, donated some, some time. They wanted to impact people living with type one diabetes. So it was a beautiful, a beautiful project to, to, to initiate, to, um, to lead. And uh, it's, a, it's a big part of the legacy. And like, I'm proud about Everest, but the run across Canada is by far um, the thing I'm most proud of because it was, it was not about one person, it was about yeah, a vision and a message and something that that brought a lot of good to the world. I will be very honest with you. When I was watching some videos of, of what you do today and more of my research, I was watching a couple of videos and I actually got quite emotional. And I rarely do that, not, not in like a tough guy way, but I, I rarely get emotional about things like that. And from my own perspective of someone who lives with diabetes has done for the past 10 odd years it was so inspirational for me to watch even just today and from me personally i'd like to thank you for everything that you've done up to this point because you've done amazing things but you've done it for amazing reasons and again i'd like to personally thank you for that and anyone listening i know would like to thank you so i'll thank you thank you on their behalf it's amazing to see because like we both know when you're diagnosed with this thing it can seem like it will just consume your life that <clears throat> so many things will change and so many things will change but you prove that they don't have to change in a negative way and you've just done incredible things so thank you personally and i want to ask you <laughs> I wasn't expecting to say that, by the way. <laughs> what's next for you? After all these unbelievable things you've done, what's next on the agenda? I've been very focused on Ironman racing for the last while, but this, this summer I'm working on a, a big project and I want to take a crack at the speed record for cycling across Canada. Um, so it's currently standing at 13 days and almost four hours so that's about 
475 kilometers per day for, you know, 13 days uh, straight. And you're going through the Canadian Rockies and, and all sorts of terrain and climates. So, um, and I've spoken to the record holder, really nice guy, huge leadership. Um, to me, that's huge leadership on his part to be willing to talk to me and share secrets. And, and uh, so that was awesome to, to see. It was a beautiful conversation. So, yeah, I want to take a crack at that. It's not going to be easy. I, I think the record is solid. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have what it takes. And the whole program we're building around this thing is record. I don't think matters that much. We, I just want to go out there and do something, you know, tough and see what we learn and share it with people with type 1 diabetes. So it's helpful. Well, based off what you've done already, I've, I've no doubt you'll break that record on top of everything else. We'll I want to finish with one more question, Sebastian. I like to always finish the, epi- the episodes with this question. Finish on a positive note to see how other people view their diabetes. So if you had the opportunity to thank your diabetes for something, what would that be? Uh, discipline, resilience, purpose, mostly purpose, if I have to pick one, because um, it taught me how important it was to um, be there for others and help others and try to make a, a difference and help others um, to fulfill their dreams and mission. So I'm very thankful for that because I don't think I understood those things at 22 uh, when I was lacking a lot of things, to be honest, and spending too much time at the pub. <laughs> Love it. One more thing. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they watch your videos, even get in touch? Easy to find on social media. So the uh, alias is uh, at uh, Seven Spires. That's um, uh, on Instagram and Facebook and all of that. Uh, my website is sevenspires.com. Uh, my personal email is there. My personal uh, phone number is there. I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> Take <Before>. that down. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm uh, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm active there because uh, of the work I, I, I do, of course. And uh, so I'm easy to find. Just Google my name. Good stuff. Sebastian, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you uh, set your mind to in recent years or in coming years, I should say. Yeah, and, and thank you as well for your time. Thanks for what you do for, I know you've had a lot of amazing guests uh, with great, great messages. And I, I wish I, you know, had been able to listen to podcasts like that one when I was newly diagnosed. Um, I think you're having a massive impact. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. I'll chat to you soon. How good was that? <laughs> what did I tell you? What an unbelievable person. I know I briefly touched on it there just as as we were finishing up, but on a personal level, hearing Sebastian's story is so inspiring. And I don't use that word lightly. For anyone who's living with type 1 diabetes to hear all of the amazing things that he's done and continues to do, it just proves that you can do whatever you want with this condition. And it proves that even if you feel like it's going to make you restricted in what you can do and what you can't do and what you believe you can do, Sebastian, you're just throwing that out the window. Talk about taking things to a different level. It's unbelievable. I almost don't even know what to say. But as always, appreciate you listening. 
if you are enjoying the podcast, which I hope you are, I presume you are, please leave a review, please share, please comment and get the podcast out there. It really helps us out and it really helps us reach more diabetics. And that is obviously the goal of the podcast, because if you have benefit from it, other diabetics out there can too. So as always, thank you very much. Have a great day. Have a great week. If you have a story, if you have a question, if you want to even just reach out to myself or Graham, don't hesitate. The Insulone Podcast at gmail.com. We're loving some of the stories coming in and we're loving some of the questions. So we're looking forward to the next episode. But until then, as I said, have a good week, have a good day and mind those blood sugars. Take it easy.